So, welcome Noni Goldman to the Lori Lucian podcast. I am so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. So Noni, I'm going to briefly tell people that you are an expert in cultivation. You're an expert in seed to sale compliance. You're an expert in helping companies form product manufacturing, cultivation um, efficiencies. And my thing is, I don't really see many people who look like you doing what you do. Whether it's a woman, whether it's a person of Asian descent, you know, like, like it's, it's just all of it is just um, very anomalous in the best way possible. So Miss Noni Goldman, tell me, who the fuck are you? <laughs> all right. Um, so I'm Noni Goldman. I'm 35 years old. I'm um, a, a process engineer for the cannabis industry. What that means is I basically build efficiencies in all the different departments. Uh, my background is in large-scale cultivation, having started in the New York medical market in 2016. Um, and since then, I've just bounced around as a consultant at different organizations. I worked in Canada. Um, through Seed to Sale, I worked with, man, so many different states and in their varying degrees of regulation. Um, I'm also uh, an activist and an educator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So many titles, many, many hats. So my question, yeah. though, is like, first, how did you even get into cannabis? Bring, like, bring sure. us to the beginning of your uh, the love story. Yeah, definitely. So uh, it was a fluke. Um, I think like most people in New York in 2016, when that medical market opened up, it, it took a lot of us by surprise because there's only like four big operators. I think it was Pharmacanus, Curaleaf, Columbia Care, and Etain. And Etain's the only one that was like um, people from New York. Everyone else was an MSO. Yeah. Um, so these giant greenhouses popped up uh, in the Hudson Valley, close to where I was. Um, and at that time, I was working for a luxury importer of um, caviar and uh, specialty cheeses. What? So yeah. So my role was my role was in like logistics for all of this and working with the wholesale team and also the fishery. Um, and that was what. Uh, I guess, appealed to Pharmacanus. But like most startups, their wholesale channel was secondary to like actually starting up the greenhouses and scaling. Mm. And they do have experience in traditional agriculture. And um, so what ended up happening was I was just part of the startup team for the greenhouses. And we expanded from like zero plants to 50,000 square feet and all of the intricacies of vertical operations and uh, new regulated markets and it being like a really strict medical market. Um, so that was my first cannabis job. And wow. then when adult use happened in Massachusetts, me and my friends were here every weekend going to like Boston Freedom Rally and checking out different dispensaries, uh, trying to get into NETA and cultivate like that first weekend when adult use happened. Um, and then also understanding the caregiver network and the ability to home grow. These are all foreign concepts to New York. So it very quickly um, translated to me wanting to be here full time. Uh, so, so now I'm the director of sales for Milltown Agriculture. And this is a really cool project. This is in Holyoke. Uh, this is a renovated 
1901 factory building that used to house the National Blank Book Factory where like I think one out of eight people in Holyoke used to work here. What? Uh, so yeah, so every time we have a contract or anything else, they tell us this amazing story about uh, their personal family tied to this building. Oh, that's and now we grow wonderful. weed. Yeah, now we now we grow weed in it, which is amazing. Um, and this is a multi-cannabis tenant building, so there's a dispensary popping up. Um, there's enough space for us to sublease to uh, like boutique specialty manufacturing. It's a jumpstart our own incubator program. So right now, Milltown is just focused on the cultivation and the canopy expansion, but there's so much happening in this building. It's going to be really exciting. Oh, that's wonderful. I love these little sectors of cannabis. Like they're just concentrated. Yeah. And so much is concentrating in Holyoke. It's amazing. Exactly. I remember when um, legalization first occurred, I went to Holyoke to talk to the mayor and the whole team over there. And they were the chillest group I've ever met in my entire life. They were, like, they were like, come over here. We got HCAs. They were like making it rain HCAs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was one of the things that um, really appealed to me about Holyoke as well, where we had like, obviously everybody in, looking for an HCA when they first started happening had limited communities that were even like um, entertaining uh, cannabis entrepreneurs, but also like there were some towns that were asking to, to cut a $15,000 check just for the pleasure of looking at the application. And Holyoke, when we went to go meet with uh, Alex Morris, the mayor at the time, he had like a ream of HCAs and he just tore one off and said like, if this is good to you, this is good for us. So that was amazing. Superb. So now let's talk about, now we're, we're getting into like some issues with licensing and like, let, let's, let's remove the word issue and say challenge. Challenge. <laughs> Because it makes us feel better. <laughs> so tell me, because you, you already know, like the cannabis industry is is wild, in the sense that we're we're creating it as we as it develops. And yep. so due to that, I have a lot of um, a lot of uh, forgiveness for some of the things that have occurred. But things have occurred that have made you know people not as happy. What have you had? Some, what's what are some of the challenges that you um, feel comfortable sharing with the with the uh, listeners yeah. and some tips to overcome them? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot. <laughs> and especially as this time has gone by, I think that uh, things are kind of coming out in the wash about how difficult this whole process has been, especially for the ones who are really bootstrapping it. And my heart goes out to every single operator that's bootstrapping it because it's so hard to, first of all, find the capital resources and also like what that means if you're bringing in outside investments and also dealing with the minutia of working with a municipality and then also the changing regulations of the CCC, just to name a few high level things. Um, but I think it's really interesting. Now we're getting a lot of transparency from people about how difficult the process has been to them as individuals and their families. People who are saying like, to get through the licensing process, I couldn't turn on my heat during the winter. And that was a sacrifice that I made to get my micro business up and running. That hurts my heart, like as a empathetic individual. So there's an interesting um, perception, I think, from consumers that we're all just floating millionaires. And some of us are, I'm not. Um, and a lot of the people that we actively work to develop partnerships with, they're smaller family, they're small family funds. Um, so I think it's 
really important for uh, everybody who participates in the industry or um, visits a dispensary or even is just interested in learning more about the plant, understanding the roadmap to legalization, understanding that was like built on the hard work, unpaid work for the most part of the activists who pushed us through there, um, how the medical market really helped people with palliative care and cancer patients and all of that. And then now as we move into the like expanded legal industry, how many people are coming from such different backgrounds, from caregiver networks, from uh, local farms trying to adapt their outdoor groves into um, cannabis plants. There's a wide tapestry of things, but um, so far as like the issues of the regulations, like Lori, like you were saying before, they're building this rocket ship as they're trying to launch it. So what that happens is, you know, bullshit rolls downhill. Right. So the little guy is always the one that is the most impacted by it. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you were talking about is the difficulty on the families and on people who think that we're all rolling in dough. When to yeah. start a business that requires millions of dollars, you're in debt. So you're in negative two million, negative a million, some people negative six. So we are like, you know, we're not, I mean, like we said, some people are, 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 are wealthy and they're, they're making a lot of money, but it's not, it's not the gold rush, bro. You don't just start in like, you're making millions and millions and the market is starting to saturate. You're in yeah. a place like Worcester. You're not making the same money that Netta was making when they first opened, not even right. close. No. And you're in debt. And you're a new operator in a new um, industry, learning, making mistakes, and your mistakes are extremely costly. Yes. Okay, now that I laid out all that stress for you, how, <laughs> <laughs> how have you managed to maintain your, your center and your peace through this to not lose your shit? Oh, man, I did. I did lose my shit. I continue to lose my shit on a weekly basis. So I think That's the first powerful. one is just to, be, to have forgiveness and patience with yourself. Um, I think most entrepreneurs are their own worst critic, but like, if you look at the trajectory of the work that you've done, you've done like growth is improvement. Um, so that's really important. Just don't be too hard on yourself. But for me specifically, being able to pivot in a new direction, whether that be like, you're exploring a partnership that didn't necessarily work out and, or you have a plan on, um, uh, like a building design of your cultivation canopy and oh no actually uh, the fire department says that the fire rating for this wall won't work so scrap that and go to another one like <laughs> there's always going to be a hurdle so just be agile and patient with yourself that you can figure it out I love that it reminds me of like that uh, Miley Cyrus song there's always going to be another mountain I'm always going to want to make it move but it, ultimately it's about the climb, right? It, yeah. it doesn't matter when you get to the top, you're gonna find another one. Uh, if, yeah. you're, you don't, if you don't have a mountain in front of you, you don't have something to produce dopamine. Dopamine gives you will to live. If you have no will to live, you're gonna be depressed. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. that's why I'm grateful for the challenges sometimes. They wake my ass up, like get up big mama. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I totally, I agree with you 100%. And like the human experience is all about growth. Um, and growth is overcoming adversary, adversary in some ways. So, you know. That's exactly it. Now, I've, I hate how I have all these passwords because I have to enter it all the time. Wow. 
<laughs> and I'm like, who, like, who the hell is going to steal your identity, big mama? Who knows? I think like a lot of people, Lori. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we talked about, we talked about who the fuck are you, right? And then we talked a little bit about what you're doing. And to put it in the French, the name of the segment is what the fuck are you doing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do have one other project that I'm working on that is uh, really interesting and new. Um, we're developing my uh, the founders of Four Trees and I were starting up a, a Chickadoo uh, Farms in New York. This is one of the first 52 provisional uh, farm to dispensary licenses. It was issued by the state of New York, like April 13th. Uh, so um, this summer. Uh, we'll be spending our time converting the established hemp farm into um, a high THC farm uh, for that adult use market. The, that is exceptional. If y'all don't hurry up and put some respect on my girl's name, like <laughs> this, yo, this is exceptional. And these are the types of multi-state operators we like to see, right? You care about the plant, you care about the consumers, you care about the industry. And you also are, I, I think of, of uh, us as artists and scientists where we're trying to improve every aspect of it. And I, I'm so happy that you were one of the ones who were fortunate enough to make it into New York. You're like, you deserve Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this is great. Well, I'm gonna come, I, I gotta visit the summer when you're- uh, Yeah, it's it's yeah. in the Hudson Valley. It's um, just like, beautiful location um what what's interesting is like going back into the regulations part of it what's really interesting is that the adult use dispensary licenses are still under public comment in new york state so i have a general idea of who's going to be our downstream um, suppliers but like that is <laughs> it's not formal it's not formalized like right now so right that's like most things it it's stressful but you just got to roll with the punches you really do. So can you talk us talk to us a little bit about that process? How were you able to um, tr get into cannabis, get into get into cannabis in New York? Um, I know it's an interesting path that you took and it started with like, another, you know, hemp and it went into you mind explain to the folks how that process worked, even though the regulations in New York a little. Sure. Um, so this is a, a pretty new development. I feel like the new administration, um, Governor Hochul, really wanted to progress um, the licensing application that was on the, uh, the former administration. Um, and one of the things that they prioritized was to build a pathway for established hemp farms into the adult use industry. So the provisional license that they put together was for established hemp farms. Um, so there, uh, you, you had to be operational for a certain amount of years. I you think you had to post revenue, like little things here and there, but if you were a hemp farmer with an established uh, uh, Department of Agriculture license, you were applicable for this license type and the entrance fee for the license was only two grand. So that opened it up to everybody. Um, so that's not something that Massachusetts decided to prioritize, but it is something that New York did. Um, so I'm grateful for that. And we just, you know, we tried. We uh, said, okay, I think we fit all these, uh, I think we fit all these regulations. Uh, we'll sign the check for 2K. And if it doesn't happen, it's only 2K. But if it does, holy shit. Um, so yeah, that's what happened. And now we're in holy shit land. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is exciting. So um, 
are, are, are other, so if somebody else had a hemp decided today that they wanted to uh, be included in this, it, it wouldn't be eligible. Like if I went in, I'm like, yo, I'm going to so. start hemping tonight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe so. So, but this is excellent. And now we're waiting to see how the down, downstream distributors and retailers are going to be licensed and man, well, I hope that, you know, New York does, does well by its people because what they were doing with stop and frisk and just awful atrocious yeah yeah atrocious. um so shout out to new york for being uh, for, for taking some strides um in the right direction <laughs> yeah definitely okay now we're in this we're in the next phase of the, our our segment this segment is how the fuck did you get here <laughs> and, <laughs> oh man that this segment i i would really love to start with like your household I want to go back to little tiny Noni as a child. How was it growing up in your, what kind of household did you grow up? Was it straight, relaxed? I want to know what produced this, this boss. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, so I grew up overseas. Uh, I didn't really live in the United States until about 2005. Um, but before that, so I was born in Indonesia. Um, and then my, my dad, um, he worked for a big, uh, multinational construction company doing uh, project management of things like Penn Station, airports, things like that. So big infrastructure projects. Yeah. Uh, so through that, we, we bumped around a lot um, as uh, he was building like these amazing giant structures. So I spent a lot of my childhood in Seoul, South Korea, uh, and then also Bali, Indonesia. Um, my mother's family is from Indonesia. And then also Ithaca, New York, which is where my dad's from. So we would spend summers in Ithaca. Uh, and then uh, so far as like conservative or not, I would say we're pretty conservative, but it's kind of hard to have such a um, strict frame of reference when you're just exposed to so many different cultures. Like obviously the world is much bigger than um, what, uh, you know, the Reagan uh, photo in my hallway would like me to believe. So, you know. That is really interesting. I mean, cause you, you know, I grew up in Haiti and so coming yeah. to the United States and having to assimilate to the culture and realize, you know, what it means to be a woman in America versus what it means to be a, a woman in Haiti, what it means to be black in Haiti versus what it means to be. So did you have to, how, how, how was it coming back to the United States and trying to assimilate into this or Incorporate yeah. Well, thankfully, um, you know, I would come to Ithaca every summer. So I, I had that kind of frame of, I, I, I wasn't like totally left out of pop culture references, yeah. even though I had a fake, like a lot of stuff, like I had a fake liking Jersey Shore and stuff like that. I had never ah. watched it. Um, but so I, I always, I always had my childhood friends from New York to kind of fill me in, but it was definitely a culture shock. I think um, when I was living in Korea, it was so academically rigorous. Um, even though I went to an international school, it was like 90% Korean. So, um, so far as uh, the focus on education, that, you know, that was, that, that was my life. So coming back and um, just being a young adult out of school here, like I had to develop my own identity that wasn't just about, you know, like what was your last test score? Nobody gives a shit. So, <laughs> so that was really interesting. Uh, so far as like being a woman or being a minority woman, um, that was different too. 
Korea is pretty, is a homogenous culture. And uh, I think just because I'm also Asian, people just thought I, I had a nicer tan. <laughs> and I know just enough uh, Korean to kind of get by and shopping and uh, like the taxi and stuff. Um, so like, it was just different not seeing as many people that looked like me or had the same kind of cultural references. Most mm -hmm. Asian cultures are a little bit more reserved. And um, I think there's like uh, uh, the tall poppy syndrome, which is, uh, you know, you're part of an, um, a homogenous culture. And uh, if you are too boisterous or you're um, too uh, loud about your achievements, that's actually kind of like frowned Mm -hmm. that is the opposite of American culture you're always supposed to be optimistic and um, uh, just like professing all of these amazing things that you're doing so finding where I'm comfortable in that spectrum is was very challenging I can absolutely relate to that um, the need to be humble and not speak too highly um, of your achievement is something that I've had to, that's my culture. And then you come here and people want you to tell them everything you're doing, like what have you accomplished so they can like determine how much love and respect to give you. Right. It's crazy, but it just it is what it is. You know, one time I was at an event and this guy was like, he looked kind of arrogant, not to judge him, but I ended up being correct. So he's talking to me. He's like, so who are you? I'm like, you know, I'm just a human being um, experiencing life in this time space reality. So he's like, so you're nobody. I'm like, no, oh. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I am nobody because I am nothing. <laughs> I emerged from the nothingness. And uh, uh, and then immediately this young, you know, Devin Alexander? Yeah. Devin comes up, yo, big mama, don't you know who this lady is? Mama? He just was like blowing yeah. my spot up. And then the guy was like, the fuck? I'm like, sir, my accomplishments don't define me. They're just things that I've done. Who I am is how you feel right now. You'll never forget yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I'm spicy, I'm zesty. I'll get under your skin, but you'll love it. <laughs> I, you know, I'm also not surprised at all that Devin came in and just hyped you up because he's so good like that. He's, and no one even, like, and it just was out of nowhere too. It was like, yo, <laughs> big mama. I was like, oh, yo, Devin. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Shout out to the, to the Devster. Let's look at what, what the, the next segment holds. Okay. This is great. Wait, but I have a question though, because you, you had sure. Bali and Asia. I read Eat, Pray, Love. So you had the reverse of that bitch. So you started out. <laughs> yeah. You started that's, out. That's totally true. <laughs> with that, and then went to freaking the opposite end of like hyper um, logic, you know. How it's all that? about balance. It's all about balance. It, the, so like Bali and Soul are like two polar opposites about um, approaching adolescence. Like, Seoul is just, it's more densely populated than New York City, and, like, the uh, infrastructure of the city is amazing, um, relatively low crime rate, too, so I was able, you know, like, there was, it, it wasn't anything for me to be 13 years old and, like, going on to the subway 12 stops away to go to the mall to go meet up with my friends and things like that, and the, it was just, the school was really academically rigorous and then i went to bali and it's complete it's it's island time totally different uh so like the school that i was at um 
my class, I think there was like 11 individuals. The year above me was only two. And the year below me was like seven. So we would combine a lot of the classes. Our assignments would be different really related to like our competency level, but it was still a school on the beach. So <laughs> those were very different. I dream of going to Bali and I will. Let me not say dream. I intend to, to go to Bali. Yeah. yeah. Do it, do it. I'll go with you. Word? Yeah, yeah. Bro, don't say that. <laughs> Next year, like, you know, after Big Mama regenerates like she usually does, we going. Okay, I'm good. I, I love it. I got. I want to go to Haiti though. So we'll yeah, do like, fun. we'll do, we'll do, do it. it all. And the thing about Haiti too is like, I did not get to explore much of it when I was there because I had really, really, really strict parents who would let me out the house except to go to school and to church. <laughs> gotcha. Um, and I, you know, my whole time there, I went to only parties for my family, family parties, and maybe three parties from, from, from friends who weren't related to me. So I don't know much about the country. I would love for someone to explore it with. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I'm going to go visit all the forts. And the other thing I want to do too in Haiti is like figure out what kind of um, psychedelic teas these people be drinking. Cause I know they'd be on it. Haitians are too much into teas and the herbs to not know the psychedelics. The problem though is the country's so Catholic and strict and anti-drugs that yeah. um, they they pushed a lot of the herbal um, healers into this intellectual inferiority position where they wouldn't even consider them having access. You know what I mean? So I have no, so I, I would love to go and find out what kind of entheogens are growing on that fucking island and doing oh yeah because they're there dude <laughs> someone's using they're them. Out there. after 500 years of slavery you mean somebody sat there and said this shouldn't be it and they planned and we are now free mm. come That's on man happened. some shit went down and i need to know what it is i need a sip of it too okay <laughs> sure so now we, we we are moving we're moving and we're going to slightly transition into work-life balance sure. because like for, for a very long time, I had no work-life balance because I convinced myself that work was my fun <laughs> until it drained the shit out of me. Yeah, so yeah. like, I know that you're married and you have people you care about. How do you find time to uh, fill that cup while also making sure that you are doing your boss shit? Yeah, no, work-life balance is so important. And like you, that, that, that I've evolved in my thinking of that because um, I'm a workaholic if I don't... Uh, keep myself in check. Um, my husband, Steve, is also in the industry. Um, he was part of the uh, startup team um, that we've been consulting with and developing these different projects with. He's part of the New York project as well. So I think it's a, maybe it's like a little easier for me to see what the real emotional, like physical toll of working a lot is because I see it in someone that I really care about. So when that happens, I go, you know what, stop, phone's off. Like, we got to go out to dinner. We got to go, like, see a movie. Um, we got to go, like, uh, go hiking with a dog. Something analog. Something away from progress because you need to heal. Uh, and if you're healing, you, you can also, like, give yourself enough room to think creatively. A lot of the problems that we have, if I, like, take the time to spend the afternoon just, like, thinking critically or creatively about a solution, it always helps. So... I try to remind myself that that's what balance is. And um, you can't burn the candle at both ends. It's a, 
it's a marathon, not a not a race. Um, so so far as balance, like I I'm really um, sensitive to um, like the other members of my team. If I feel like I'm pushing them too hard, then like it's my job to kind of like back off on it. Um, but me personally, like dog walks. Uh, I watch a lot of like really shitty reality TV. Uh, that's like my my guilty pleasure, just to turn off and see how another person lives their life. Girl, what you watching? Um, Ninety Day Fiance. Don't even and, get me started. I love that. Are you serious? Love oh my god! You say- obsessed. Obsessed. Um, who's the who's the was he is he Egyptian? Where his sisters threw the freaking wine in his wife's face yes. when they. I would have they were, they were over at they were over at their house. Like that was a nice dinner. Like that just went crazy. But yeah, I, I love that stuff. Anyways, anybody, everybody watch 90 Day Fiance. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, so 90 Day Fiance, that's something that I that I watch a lot of. It's what I tune out to. Um, but then also like just living in western Massachusetts, there's so much beautiful nature to take advantage of. I live at the base of Mount Tom. So like, it's easy for me just to go up there and sometimes cell phone reception isn't so great in the middle of the woods up a mountain. And I am grateful for that. That's awesome. Hold on one second. Right. Um, yeah. So what were you, we were talking about. Work-life balance. Work-life balance. Um, in yeah. The- how, I mean, how do you, how do you balance that? Um, I wasn't for a little bit and I got burnt out. Um, what I have started doing is listening to my body and asking it what it wants to do. The first things I do is I have to pay the piper. Like in order for me to be healthy and have like a good disposition about my life, my body has to be fed. It has to have sufficient sleep. It has to have enough water and it has to do one thing that relaxes it. So in the morning, I try to do all of that. Go to the gym, journal, stretch, and just mentally prepare myself for the day. Once I've paid the piper, my body's able to just do whatever I want it to do. But until I've given it what it wants, it's it's not really. <laughs> it's like, not yeah. really. I, the and journaling. Um, I'm a big believer in meditation as well, and I know it's true. Meditation builds resiliency, um, and you know, just like outside of just the craziness of the cannabis industry, the whole world is insane right now. Um, so. You know, I'm a big believer in just taking the time to uh, clear out your own mind and build resiliency. And maybe if we all did it, yep. the world would be a better place. Absolutely. I think too, when I, t- when I, in, before, when I used to take a break, it wouldn't be really a break because I would be bringing in the thought of what I should be doing with this free time. And so right. it was even, le- it was even like, I might as well have just gone to work. Now, and that's because a lot of my self-esteem, you know, I feel like I relate very much so to a lot of Asian cultures because Haitians have the same strict concept about education, respecting your parents. It's the same fucking shit, bro. And so I grew up in that. And so I had to learn that I, my value didn't come from producing, from getting an A or from anything. It came from me existing, like just existing. If I did nothing else for the rest of my life, it would be a successful life. And so coming to that awareness allowed me to then take a break and like peacefully disconnect and (laughs) yeah yeah dude like what I post about is literally what I'm experiencing and I post it because I if I if it because like if I read it and it helped me it's gonna help another person but I oftentimes don't I don't want people to think like yo look at this bitch posting she must be 
all balanced and at peace all the time. Nah, me, I almost fought a bitch in traffic last week. Like, <laughs> I am not the one. <laughs> I'm working on myself like y'all are. Yes, yes. And, that, and, and just, to, I think it's so helpful just to be honest about that too. So much of what we see in social media is like just the good parts, but I mean, like we are all human beings. <laughs> all human beings trying to navigate the freaking trauma of our childhood <laughs> and integrating the, the lessons and becoming adults, whatever the hell that means. Whatever the hell that means. <laughs> I've been trying to figure it out for a while. I'm like, does it mean that I have to cook and, and like, I don't know. I think it means you're responsible for bills. I feel like that's the only constant that I've seen as to being an adult. <laughs> that's it. Besides bills, you can do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. All right, listeners, pay your bills and become a child. Go pay, go play, go do something fun for yourself, okay? <laughs> All right. So now that we're talking about work-life balance, um, the next um, segment, as you know, is not going to be a good a segment where I smoothly transition. Nah, bitch. No smooth transition here. The next segment is, how the fuck are you fucking? And this is a segment. <laughs> and the, the purpose of this segment is to really talk about sex. And it's because I grew up in a culture that was very strict. And even me being a woman talking about sex positions me in a positions me to be called a whore and you know all kinds of things and now I would if you call me a whore I'm like thank you okay <laughs> so you know it so I would like to first ask you what how, how was how was sex brought up when you were when you were growing up how was it discussed and you know it was not like at all so um you know not really there's sexual education at school and even that was like a Southern Baptist missionary school, so not really. Um, and, and then my and then my family is super conservative, so um, it wasn't anything that we talked about at the dinner table. But through older girlfriends and uh, checking books out of the library, and then eventually, like the internet became a big thing, and you could ask like the questions that you weren't too afraid to ask, like, "What is this peach fuzz?" Like things like that. So. Um, I think it, I think it was more independent learning uh, about everything. Um, but yeah, I think that's a pretty normal experience for uh, Asian cultures. Yeah, I'm trying to, maybe that's why Haitian and Asian are so close phonetically. Cause we just like, because <laughs> our parents are very similar. Um, yeah. Similarly. Um, it sounds like it. That's, that's, I'm, that's crazy to me. I bet like, okay, this makes sense. This is why I think we get along so well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was in Haiti, surprisingly, I had a Filipino neighbor. People were like, how the fuck did they get there? I don't know. <laughs> but it's like, we were, we literally, we would, it was the same shit. We just spoke different languages, hmm. like our parents. Um, so yeah, so sex was not discussed at all. So growing up in that culture, did you feel like you had some shame surrounding it? Oh, absolutely. Um, it, there, it, even just going through like puberty and things like that, they're understanding your menstrual cycle. There weren't a lot of resources that you could ask, but I'll say that the, um, I don't want to call her out, but the teacher that I had was very open-minded about the questions that I had and very discreet about them, uh, mainly because they were related to just like, uh, you know, things like, I think I'm starting my period, but I don't know. Like, how would I know? And like, well, because you're going to start menstruating blood and like, oh, that's, that's that's very helpful. I'm like, uh, like, what is you know, like, 
when would I use a tampon versus a pad and things like that? And what does this mean for my body now that it's entering into this phase? And that was all really important conversations to have with a, an adult that I trusted a lot, but there was no institutional guidance on that, not really. And yeah, I don't know, was that similar to your experience too? Since oh, you very really much. I, you know, I went to a school in Haiti that was founded by white, miss, white missionaries. <laughs> And they had us watch this video. Y'all probably watched it too. This Christian dude he used to be in movies. He was talking about abstinence. And that's the only thing we were taught. Abstinence, don't fuck till you're married. And I went through puberty a little early. I was 10. It was like on, it was like a day before my 10th birthday. And my mom basically said, if a man touches your privates, you're gonna get pregnant. I was nine, 10 years old. So my dad was coming to get my laundry so that he could give it to the maid to go wash it. And my underwear was on. I'm like, I, if my dad touches my underwear, I'm going to put it on and I'm going to get, I'm going to get pregnant. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's like, so insane. Right. So it's like, um, the, the, my education was terrible. I learned, I learned how babies were made by asking a 11th grader, like, yo, how are babies made? She was like, you put a penis in a vagina. I'm like, Right. <laughs> I remember we had, because um, I went the, the, I went to a very similar, I guess, environment um, where it was a it was a Christian missionary school in Korea. That I remember there was a um, there was a, a presentation for the sixth graders where this uh, sexual health professional came and. She gave us all a piece of gum and then like uh, later told us uh, that that was our purity. Um, so now if you engage in uh, premarital sex, your gum has already been chewed and the next person that chews it, uh, like it just gets grosser and grosser and grosser. So there was no, uh, like there was nothing taught about autonomy or consent or like, uh, the different like ways that your body changes and yeah there wasn't a lot of that it was none and we had to learn the hard way pun intended <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah no it's, it's been it's been a journey and also like I think I didn't even begin to feel um empowered sexually until I was in like my I'm in my mid-30s now mid-30s o'clock so my question for you is when did you start becoming more confident and like shedding the shame and how did you, if you had? Yeah, no, I, 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 we're on, we're, I think we're on the same track and my journey with like uh, being comfortable and understanding my sexuality and my body is still pretty recent. Um, and it was really because I started thinking about family planning and I was like, how, how does this all work? Like what, when are, when, when are my fertile days? And like, if I starting, if I'm charting my body temperature, what does that mean? And uh, one of my uh, girlfriends gave me this really great book and that like broke down, you know, like a chart of what different labias look like. Like, that's amazing. Like, right. I, there's, there's no shame in that. That's the most natural thing in the world. Women all look differently, but I think we're taught just to, to hide it all. Uh, and to not ask questions and things happen to us as opposed to us having the agency and the autonomy to take it on ourselves and right. decide that path. Mm, that's, that's, actu that's actually it. 
we, we were taught to have things happen to us and we, we get to say yes or no, but we don't get to say, I want this. And if you say right. you want this, especially in my culture, you're like, you know, you're a little too salacious. Yes. A little yeah. Jezebel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, same. So what I've done though, and also another thing that, that put me into shame is that I'll be speaking about my own experiences around older Haitians and that's my bad. I sh- and like, I'll have a parent or an aunt correct what I'm saying. So it doesn't appear as if I, I, I admitted to sucking dick or some shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. No, that's not what she said. Nanaga, I said it. <laughs> and if you ask, well, it would, <laughs> you know, it was amazing. So you're, you're um, so much more brave than me. I, I just like politely don't talk about it. <laughs> I started, I started to do it because I realized that's the only way I can break my shame. Like I'm, I'm doing it for me because the more I remain silent about what I do, it's, it makes my, it makes me feel like there's something wrong about what I'm doing. And the same gum analogy, like where I'm being used, chewed out, I have to keep saying it so that I bring, so I condition myself. I mean, it's been 34 years and the world is still reinforcing that this, you know, the feminine sexuality isn't right or appropriate. So I'm, I'm always pushing the limits for me and for them. Because I think also as my parents and my aunts and the older generation sees how liberated I am with my sexuality, it allows them to be sexually liberated too because you don't stop getting horny because you're 65 or 70. Right. You still want to smash. Um, and the fact that I, I'm, I'm being open about that gives them an, an, uh, an opportunity to explore their sexuality too. So it's kind of, I'm excited about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love it. I love everything about that man but I you know I just have to be okay with being labeled the family hoe just because I like to talk about sex (laughs) it's okay I realized that the universe created every single energy that exists even the Jezebel energy which is the energy of like being um sexually empowered because one of the stories they taught us is um during the Haitian revolution a lot of the women would tap into their seductive feminine power so that they could get the ma- so they could get the masters to trust them and love them and give them information. And they would then use that information, bring it to the military, like, yo, uh, master's gonna be here at 6.30, master's allergic to blah, 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 and then fuck them up like that. So there is power in every frequency and energy that exists in the universe. If you've been imbued with the power of Jezebel, bitch, that's some powerful energy. You have to learn how, you you don't have to do anything, but if you learn how to control, master that energy, you're unstoppable. Yeah, then you're Cleopatra. You're Cleopatra. Why do you think they're trying to lock up the pussy? Because the pussy is powerful. Men have been paying for pussy for ages. Yeah. Did I I say that? (laughs) No, but I I know what you mean. Right? It's true. You there's so many different in history just like Medihara, Cleopatra like um you know this is just a a tale as old as time that's exactly it so I have two two final questions about this that are official the first one is what does it mean to actually be sexually empowered yeah um I, I think it's agency I think it's uh you know the autonomy to decide your own path and understanding that like shame is a construct that changes depending on time and culture like in the victorian ages it was shameful to show your ankles who the fuck cares about your ankles now so um the, the, to be empowered with your sexuality is to know that that power lies within you and 
it really sucks what's happening in the Supreme Court and everything now because it's like it's a total um, code shift from 50 years ago. So I don't know. Ask me after the midterm elections what what it means to be empowered. Mm. Let's that that is like the most um, heartbreaking observation, right? Because we're we're in a time where science, like we have science. It's not like we're back in the fifties, you know, where we didn't we didn't understand the feminine body. We didn't understand life. We didn't. This is literally a conscious decision to force people to do something. Only poor people, rather to do something that is not in their best interest. Mm -hmm. We also don't have a country who gives a fuck about children. You put them in these freaking, uh, the, the, the homes, the foster homes, they get abused, they get neglected, they don't get loved and hugged. So they have no stability in their root chakra. So when they come out, they, they have no real identity, but survival. Mm -hmm. Survival consciousness is not the true you. It is what you need to, do, to, to engage in so you can live. The true you is when you relax, you're safe. And we're not creating an environment for poor kids to be safe. So why the fuck are you forcing people to have children? I don't know. Anyways, I, really don't know. I don't know. But if anything, um, we gonna change this. Sis. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I also, you know, because maybe it's the Haitian in me. I am not a nonviolent protester because I understand that um, I, in order for me to be free as a Haitian, my ancestors had to know that they had to be willing to die. You feel me? Like yeah. this, they were, they literally were putting babies in cannons to prevent men behind them from being shot by cannons so I could sit here. So for me, we have to learn to not be afraid to die. If we care about this shit, we gonna protest like it's fucking, like our lives depend on it. We get shot, so fucking be it. We'll come back and we'll keep this shit going because actually none of us can, can die. I was looking at Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant has done more for me posthumously than he did while he was alive just because he left a body of work that I can, I've been going to when I was low. And he left that body of work for all of us forever. So my great, 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 great grandchildren could have a low moment and Google Black Mamba and see that man telling them, keep going. You're deterrent, like, it's all about your mindset. So the point is there is no death. He's still helping me. He's helping, you know? So girl, we need to fight. Don't give a fuck about dying. Otherwise, it's okay to, then we're okay with being enslaved by the consciousness of those who haven't evolved as much as us. Hmm. Hmm. I am all for protesting. <laughs> like, I used to protest so much, but you know, I, I started realizing that the protest didn't accomplish as much as I wanted to. What it did accomplish was it gave me a, a space to vent and remove energy from me so that I can consciously decide how to move. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. No, the, but there's also, you know, like a huge value in that too. Like, um, um, just being at different protests, even in just the cannabis space, so many yeah. of the people that I met, like in 2018, when I first was here, that was all I was doing, just kind of like understanding where, like, what are the different perspectives here? Right. And that is super helpful too, because it, it, it educated me really, really fast. Absolutely. Well, that was, that was good. And um, I didn't realize how topical that question was too. <laughs> um, so my other question uh, with this segment is, what advice do you have to, you know, a, a young woman and man, you know, non-gender, whenever I'm talking about men, women, y'all, please don't. English is my third language. Like 
I'm just, I'm trying, but I'm, I want to include everybody. So what advice would you have to someone, to, to an individual who is trying to, to, to develop some, some autonomy and become sexually empowered? Hmm. What advice would I have? Um, just, you know, it's, it's okay to evolve your thinking. Um, growth is the most important human experience. So, you know, just always, if you kind of, if you kind of pin it on safety and, um, you know, consent, then, yeah, you know, have fun. I love it. And have, <laughs> yo, that's the secret. Have fun. Yeah. Have fun. And for though, I have some, one more. I know that people who deal with a lot of shame, they're in their minds a lot during sex, so they can't even enjoy it. So what I would get my, the advice I would have for you is know that your body is a program. If you tell it to do something, it will listen. So if you start seeing yourself thinking too much, just tell your, just tell your body, I trust you, you know what to do. And I'm going to surrender to you now. And you let the body take over because there's nothing more animalistic than fucking. So your brain has no purpose, no reason to be in there. You just need to close your eyes and let the bitch do what it does. Okay. I so love that's it. Right, that's my advice. You sit there, have a little prayer with your body, say, this is great. You know, I, I surrender to your knowledge and your wisdom and it knows what to do. I mean, this is the last piece. Technically, according to, uh, to um, African spirituality, your ancestors live inside of you. My ancestors have been fucking since the beginning of time. You know what I'm saying? Like, all I gotta do is like, yo, Yo, whoever the main bitch, whoever who has the best Jezebel energy, come forward right now, bitch, and help a motherfucker out. <laughs> and then generations spawn before you. Like, that's how it happens. It's the most that's natural thing happens. in the world. <laughs> so think about, you know, the, you know, that wisdom is in your DNA. Just surrender to it and be okay. I know a lot of men tell me this. Like, you think it's easy for us? We have to learn. Who told you that? Because it's it's like a co-creative act. You guys do this together. And if you, again, surrender to the wisdom of the body, you're going to make beautiful art. Maybe it might have a baby. Yeah, yeah. This is the most natural thing in the world. Like, if you even just look at, like, the Kama Sutra or, like, everything else, this is so, this is beyond our our personal, like, lifetime. So Absolutely. We're humans. And... Yeah, except we're humans. And you and for the listeners, at one point I might actually do um, an episode on sex magic and how you use the energy of sex and kundalini to manifest in this reality. Very powerful shit. Um, you'd never waste an orgasm without using that energy to program time-space reality into what you want. If I'm with a man and I notice that he has some self-esteem issues, I'm gonna use the energy of the kundalini to heal him by speaking confidence into him like right okay i'll give it to you now we're in here this is how you do it if you if you want to manifest using sex right before you come because that's when the brain is in theta it's most receptive and susceptible to programming your subconscious so if, if the man has low self-esteem right before he comes i say you are powerful you are strong you can accomplish anything and i say the name like x can pop and then i put it in the subconscious and it pop ah. watch watch a month keep you'll start seeing results you can also do it for a job you can do it for a car you can do it for any because everything is energy that's it that's the sex magic for you that, sorry amazing. mom <laughs> my mom's like how'd you learn this mom don't eat why why are you watching this 
No, but it's powerful. And I think that's a really, yeah. you know, like that, that's a really important thing to say too, because it's a, you're in a very vulnerable position, like literally. Yeah. So to, to, to understand that that's like something that your partner needs, that is so powerful. And you're the only person that can give that to them. Um, you know, it is extremely powerful. And I think that that's what Giselle Bunch should be doing for Tom Brady. Uh, I think it's that and they don't eat sugar. They don't eat sugar. They be doing rituals. <laughs> <laughs> they don't eat sugar. No, I think like there was something that I read a while, a while ago about like they just don't eat any sugar and they haven't for a decade. Like they their sugar intake is from uh, like a limited amount of uh, fresh fruit. Fruits and stuff. I respect yeah. that. I respect it, man. So if it works for Tom Brady, <laughs> like, <laughs> wow, yeah. yo, this is like this has been so exceptional. I want to thank you so much for being open and like not shying away from any of my intrusive ass questions. <laughs> no, I loved it. There's there's nothing wrong with talking about sexuality and even just like two two young women, non-white young women talking about it. That there's not a lot of conversation right. like that. And from our strict ass backgrounds. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Man, I, yeah, honestly, I, you, it, it's, it's, it's been very refreshing and I'm excited. And you are actually the first guest from the, from the relaunch. Oh, the, wow. The I'm so honored. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for agreeing. And thank you for being supportive. Of course. It means a Anytime. lot. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm super grateful that you came. I owe you some beer because that's the gift I give to all my guests. Um, what? Do you, if you're a beer drinker, what kind, what kind of beer do you typically drink? Uh, I love sours. Okay. Um, I'm not a big, uh, nah. I, I like IPAs. I, I like sours the best. And then um, like a Hefeweizen, anything like that. A triple. Those are my, those are my other. Favorites. I got you. We have a sour pineapple at 67 degrees. Um, oh, we have a ton of IPAs. We got West Coast, East Coast. Those, the coast oh, are always nice. deep in. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. You know, you know, I choose no sides. Um, but this was, yeah, this is excellent. So uh, as a guest, I'll get you some sour pineapple and I'll figure out West Coast, West Coast versus East Coast. Which IPA? Are you like a bitter, oh. more, like a more bitter? You say, I don't uh, want to choose. You Yeah, beat. I like them all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Um, with, I think we have like two minutes. With two minutes, if you have, you, you, you gave us some parting words on sexual empowerment, but now if there's anything like, if um, this is the last, if um, in 200 years, your descendants are Googling your ass and they find this episode, what would you want them to know? What message do you have for them? Hmm, in 200 years? Mm -hmm. um, well, let's say since like a pandemic happens every hundred years, I would hope that they like, you know, that you, you weathered the new one, whatever, reasonably well. <laughs> um, I think if my ancestors were to see this, I, I hope that uh, if they do have any hangups about sexuality, that those kind of fall to the side because uh, they're only here because I got busy with my husband. You know, that's just the most natural thing in the world. Um, but also that there's like, things are always changing, but they're also always the same just uh, have a sense of resiliency and know that the most important thing is uh, family and friends become family too. They become family really, really quick. Um, but then also working with your hands is really, really important. So I hope that they are also actively gardening and like know how to run a sewing machine and all that kind of stuff.
stuff. In 200 years, I think that's still going to be important. I love that. Man, this is excellent. I really felt like I was sitting there, one of your descendants, just like, if I, I, if I found this of one of my great, great, great grandmothers, yo, I'd be, I'd shit myself. This is, <laughs> first of all, you look mad, like, self-assured, like, you know what the fuck you're talking about. I've been through this, and I'm telling you, you wouldn't be here if I didn't fuck, so go. <laughs> yeah. Consent uh, and safety. That's it. Have fun. Have fun. Well, I am grateful that you are here. And, you know, infinite love, infinite light to you and the fam. Great, you. You too. You too. I really appreciate you uh, having me on as a guest and being the first one at your relaunch. I just want you to know that I support everything that you do. And you're such a badass individual. And anything you need from me, you have it. I respect you. I thank you so much. And I appreciate that. Like, I'm receiving it. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you. Well, thank you. Let me, let me stop the recording. Au revoir, mes amis. Bye. 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 Bye